0: Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks, Megan. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. This is your word. May we hear it in our hearts. May it move us. May it shape us. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, well, like Megan said, it's my privilege to be here with you tonight. I serve the Eastside Congregation. And we meet at 10 o'clock every Sunday at Peter Kirk Community Center in beautiful downtown Kirkland. Not the other side of the world. You don't have to have a passport to go. Love to have you come visit sometime. I want to begin our time together tonight by reading an excerpt from a story I came across this week. The story is about a young man who is applying for a Rhodes Scholarship. Some of you may be familiar with this. Very prestigious thing. So listen to this. These are his reflections on his process. The morning of my Rhodes Scholarship interview, I threw up in my hotel room. I slung my tie over my shoulder, kneeled onto the marble, and realized I had lied every time I told someone that I was ready for this interview. The judges were going to ask me why I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar, and the answer that was true wasn't the answer that they wanted to hear. So he goes through this interview, it's stressful. They ask him the big question, why do you want to be a Rhodes Scholar? He he fumbles out an answer. And then after the fact, the narrative catches up to him that night. I knew I wasn't going to sleep much the night after my interview, not because I was nervous, but because I got into bed feeling like a fraud. When the judges had asked why I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar, I told them it was to fight the world's fight. I guess I'm a trophy hunter and this is a big shiny trophy wouldn't have sounded sufficient. I may have wanted to fight for the good of the world, but as the judges had more or less pointed out earlier, you didn't need an Oxford fellowship to do that. Really, I was fighting to make the world think good of me. I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar because I wanted the prestige, the existential affirmation, and the social media capital. I wanted a team of experts to aim its searchlights at me, to look into what it saw, and declare that I was worthy of the club. That reflection stood out to me this week because we were talking about the heart, and we're talking about the heart tonight. What drew me to this article was how that young man, 22 years old, is able to take such a sharp assessment of his own heart after the fact, even in the moment. Why do you want to be a Rhodes Scholar? He thought he knew the answer to that question. He thought he knew how his heart would approach that. And instead, the question dug into these crevices and corners of his heart that he couldn't have planned. As we'll come to find out at the end of the article, he doesn't get the Rhodes Scholarship. We're talking about the heart today because it's a key word in the text that Megan read for us, this next beatitude that we're studying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And as we've been acknowledging throughout this sermon series, can you see it? We're talking about the kingdom of God, which Dallas Willard defined as the range of God's effective will, where what God wants done is done. His kingdom is all around us. And as Willard said, our lives are meant to integrate into and submit and surrender to God's kingdom. That's the way our kingdoms can actually flourish. You have a range of your will. I have a range of my will. But it'll never be expressed in the way that God designed it unless it integrates with his wonderful kingdom. And so each statement that Jesus has been making throughout the Beatitudes is a statement of this is what life is supposed to be like in the kingdom. This is how it's supposed to be. It's not like this. It's like this. Where God's rule and reign are unmistakable, those who are pure in heart can see him. Now, as is often the challenge in any kind of spiritual or faith pursuit, it's one thing to know about something, and it's another thing to really live it out, to make it personal. So I titled tonight's sermon, Taking It Personally. And I want to encourage you to take notes, and I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into things and give you a different outline than what's in your bulletin. So if you want to just follow along, I'll give you the three headings and you can scratch out those carefully worded statements by Pastor Richard and put mine in. So the first question is, who are the pure in heart? Who are the pure in heart? The second question is, what blocks us from purity of heart? What gets in the way? And the last question is, where do we locate our hope? Who are the pure in heart? What blocks us from purity of heart? And where do we locate our hope? And I like to do a thesis. I like to do kind of an overarching idea for the whole thing. And so if you want to write that down, it goes like this. Those who are pure in heart know the kingdom in a personal way. Those who are pure in heart know the kingdom in a personal way. Now, let's start by talking about the first question. But before we do that, I want to talk for just a minute about authority. Because I think authority is one of the keys to understanding why this should even matter in our lives. Maybe you're new to faith. Maybe you've been here for a really long time. And if so... I am really grateful for the people who've been here for a long time, upon whose faithfulness I get to now minister and serve a really wonderful group of people on the east side. But regardless of where we are in our faith journey, whether you're checking Jesus out, whether your spouse kind of dragged you here, when you start to talk about the heart, I think we all have a similar reaction. We start to go, okay, I'm X number of years old, in my case 34, I kind of know my heart. I think I kind of understand what drives me, what motivates me. I think I have some of this figured out. And you have every right to ask, why are we even looking at this beatitude? Why would this be valuable to me? What am I missing? One of my favorite quotes, I don't even know who said it, but I like it, is on our own, we are not our own. On our own, we are not our own. What that means is I need, you need, we need an outside authority to help us make sense of our lives. My lenses are too fractured. My filters are too choked up with my own brokenness and my own sin. And so I need something, someone that stands outside of myself and says, hey, have you thought about looking at your life this way? I need an outside authority to be able to see my life as God intends it. And I feel like that's one of the main things we're going to get at in the text tonight. Is that the authority of God speaking through God's word is actually what changes and renovates our hearts and makes the kingdom that much more accessible to us. So the way we're going to get at this is twofold. We're going to talk about the heart in the Old Testament and then we're going to talk about the heart in the New New Testament. In the Old Testament it's a very simple Hebrew word lev which is actually one of the most common words in the entire Old Testament. It pops up almost 900 times, and so what that means is we actually have a fairly decent idea of what the Old Testament, what the Hebrew culture at that time meant when it was talking about heart. We don't have to guess at it too much. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart was the home of the inner person, the self, the seat of the thoughts and the emotions. When Moses is trying to lead the people out of the wilderness, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. His heart becomes hard. That inner fortitude starts to block up against what God wants. The psalm sings so eloquently of the heart, as we will talk about together in a little while. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The heart is critical in the life of faith, according to the Hebrews. It is the home of the inner person, the self, the seat of thoughts and emotions. Now, when we get to the New Testament, it's not like a 180. There's, there's kind of an add-on, a yes and, to this statement. In the New Testament, the word o- most often used for heart is cardia. And that's where we get English words like cardiology, cardiogram. In the Greek way of thinking, the heart was the seat of your feelings, your impulses, your desires, as well as the seat of your intellect, So if you're a lawyer, you've been trained to make dispassionate arguments. You've been trained to sort of separate your emotions from the arguments you're trying to make on behalf of your client. The witness of the New Testament, not to throw any lawyers under the bus, is that's kind of hard to do. That may not even be possible to do. To completely extract our emotions from the way that we think isn't something that human beings are necessarily wired to do. Jesus taught this, and actually the young man in the Rhodes Scholarship story found this out. Turn with me to to Matthew chapter 6, if you brought your Bibles with you. Jesus shares these words just a few pages after he shares the statement that we were talking about from the Beatitudes. He's talking about true riches. He's talking about, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then at the end of this statement, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Isn't that exactly what happened to the young man in the story about the Rhodes Scholarship? His treasure was, I want the big shiny trophy. I want this to work. I want the prestige. And he didn't get it. He didn't get it. And I think his heart failed him in a way. Turn over just a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah And he offers this indictment to his audience, so not a friendly statement from Jesus. For this people's heart has grown dull, I'm reading verse 15, and their ears are hard of hearing, they've shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart, in turn, and I would heal them. Now, notice at the beginning of that verse, Jesus connects the heart to a dull instrument, like a knife that you can't cut anything with, like something that isn't tuned properly, to deafness. That's how it starts. But at the end of the verse, he ties the heart to understanding, which leads to healing. I see this as a really pastoral moment for Jesus, where he looks at the people who are following him, he sees that they're discouraged, he sees that they're hearing about the kingdom of God, and he goes, Man, this is hard. Let me try to encourage these guys just a little bit. This is hard to hear. You will be like Pharaoh sometimes. Your heart will be hard. It's okay. God is still at work. Keep listening. Bring your hearts and you will be changed. Now we need to look at the word pure for just a minute. Uh, The English major in me loves this because it's a word that has both a literal and a metaphorical meaning. In the literal sense... It's something clean, something pure, unsoiled, the pure in heart. After his brutal death, Jesus' body is laid to rest in a tomb, wrapped in a clean linen shroud. That word for clean is right there, pure. Metaphorically, it's used to indicate someone who is guiltless and innocent of a crime, like Jesus Christ, the one who went on a show trial, who was subjected to an injustice unlike anyone else has ever suffered in the world. So who are the pure in heart? Let's just get right to that question. Those who are pure in heart know the kingdom in a personal way. We talked about that at the beginning, but they know the kingdom, not just intellectually, but in their gut, in the seat of their person, in their emotions, in ways that when they hear about something that is contrary to the kingdom, something going on in the world that is not right, it literally yanks them apart at the seams. And this is where I think Dallas Willard's witness about the pure in heart is so helpful. Dallas Willard paints a not-so-rosy picture of the pure in heart in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. I'd never really thought about it like this before, as a burden to be carried. I never thought about pure in heart as a burden. But hear what Willard says about this. And then there are the pure in heart, the ones for whom nothing is good enough, not even themselves. These are the perfectionists. Okay, no fair if you just elbowed your spouse. No, that's not playing nice. They are a pain to everyone themselves most of all. In religion, they will certainly find errors in your doctrine, your practice, probably your heart and your attitude. They may be even harder on themselves. They endlessly pick over their own motivations. They wanted Jesus to wash his hands even though they were not dirty and they called him a glutton and a drunk. Their food is never cooked right. Their clothes and hair are always unsatisfactory. They can tell you what is wrong with everything, how miserable they are, And yet, the kingdom is even open to them. And there at last, they will find something that satisfies their pure heart. They will see God. And when they do, they will find what they have been looking for. Someone who is truly good enough. Someone who is truly good enough. This is a game changer. The pure in heart are not Boy Scouts who never swear. They're not Girl Scouts who just sell delicious cookies. They are not people who have it all figured out. They live with the deepest possible burden for the broken world around us. And they want it to be made right. And here's the catch. Here's the hope. Here's the wonderful news. In Jesus Christ, we have found the one who is good enough. We have found the one who satisfies those perfectionistic tendencies. Jesus is so good, his goodness makes any other form of goodness just pale in comparison. He satisfies the longing of our hearts and he brings unity in a deeply personal way. A commentary that I read this week put it this way, the pure in heart enjoy undivided loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom undivided loyalty. Now think about that. When we think about loyalty in real life, we think about being loyal to the Seahawks, even though they didn't make the Super Bowl. We think about being loyal to this, that, or the other, loyal to our tradition, loyal to this. The thing that really convicted me this week is thinking about loyalty in marriage. Undivided loyalty is the cornerstone of being able to enter in and stay engaged in a healthy marriage. Undivided loyalty is really hard. It's really costly because, as is often said in traditional wedding vows, I forsake all others. And in our culture that absolutely is in love with, I'll keep my options open, I want to have a back door, I want to have an exit strategy, undivided loyalty in Christian marriage, it's an anathema. It's not something that people want to get after. And this begins in the heart. This undivided loyalty happens to those who are pure in heart. Kingdoms begin in the heart. That's the source of where your kingdom, my kingdom is. And my kingdom is so dinky. It is such a limited thing. But when in his mercy, Jesus Christ lets me live in his kingdom and see his flourishing and see what he desires, then my heart is oriented properly. My heart aligns with his will. My heart is undivided in all the different things that it encounters. So I want to ask the question, And actually give us a moment to consider this silently. What is shaping your kingdom? Toward what are you offering your loyalty? Am I offering my loyalty? Is it the driving forces of the marketplace? If you're a teacher, is it the whims and wills of your students? Is it getting to the finish line of retirement? Is it your stock portfolio? Is it your children? Is it your spouse? Is it your dream cabin? Good things can divide our loyalty to Jesus Christ when we make them ultimate things. So just pause with me for just a moment in the silence. Ask God a very simple but a very searching question. How is my loyalty divided today? How is my loyalty divided the psalmist writes, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Friends, the kingdom that you and I need to belong to is the kingdom that our hearts need to line up with. And so if we want God's kingdom to truly impact and transform our hearts at a personal level, we need to be able to identify the things that are blocking us from that. And so I just want to look very briefly at a case study of where that's happening in Jesus' life. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 6, we'll look at a verse where Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees. Jesus is talking about bearing fruit, which is one of his big metaphors, which he includes in his descriptions of the kingdom you'll know that someone cares about God's kingdom in part because of the flourishing, because of the fruit that comes about in their lives. And on the flip side of the coin, you'll know when someone is trying to live disconnected to the kingdom, not a part of the kingdom, because of the absence of fruit or because the fruit they're producing is just really rotten. And this is what Jesus is bringing to the Pharisees' attention. So in Luke 6, in verse 45, he says this, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good and the evil person out of that evil treasure produces evil for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks he takes aim at the hearts of the Pharisees and he does so beautifully using this parallel structure to kind of tug them in they think they're one thing he shows them that they're another thing he actually gets a lot more bare-knuckled with them turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 Matthew 23 verses 25 and 26 Uh, sidebar, I can't read this without smiling because our kitchen here at Bethany Community Church has this hanging over it as instructions for how to wash dishes. So you'll get it when I read it in just a minute. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean. Everybody's picturing the dirty sink at your office right now. What's Jesus after when he says these very strong words to very powerful people? He's saying it, by the way, to a group of people who probably would have answered, why yes, I, I think I am pure in heart. Thank you for bringing that up. He's naming one of the deepest issues of his day, which still continues in our day, and that is pride. Pride. The Pharisees were a prideful group of guys. Their garments, their appearance, their religiousness was all designed not to draw them closer to the gospel, but to prevent them from actually encountering it. Their practices and priorities were designed to distance them from the real issue, how utterly broken their hearts are. And this is ironic because the Pharisees should have been well-versed in the Old Testament. They should have known some of those roughly 900 references to the heart. They should have understood the witness of the Old Testament as it spoke to that. And appropriately, they may have understood this warning, but I guess they just missed it from Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? That's a tough indictment to hear. And what's it saying? It's saying that what's blocking us, to answer our question for this section, what's blocking us from purity of heart is actually our hearts. Our hearts are blocking us because we desire things that are broken, things that are fractured, things that are stained by the darkness of sin. So the theological tribe that I kind of come from is the Reformed tradition. Some of you are very familiar with this. A certain seminary professor, way more so than me. Theologians like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Abraham Kuyper, these are the kind of people that I've come to know and love. One of the doctrines from this tradition, which I think is actually very deeply rooted in our scriptures, is something called total depravity. And the joke goes that no one who believes in total depravity can be all bad. What it means is that all people are broken, they are torn up inside, no one is exempt from this. And while that may actually sound like a huge bummer, like wow, your theological tribe is really lame, it is a huge source of encouragement for me. And let me tell you why. I know that because my heart is broken, I don't have to try to convince myself that I can make everything right that I can fix it, that I can fix myself, straighten out the ship all on my own, go back to that earlier conviction I had about authority. I need an outside authority to set me straight. And part of my conviction around that comes from total depravity. Mark is the president of Fuller Seminary and he tells a story about reading the Bible with his son, Sam, when Sam was young, probably elementary school. And so Sam and Mark are sitting next to each other on the couch and they get to the story where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry. Everybody's cheering for him. He's riding on the back of a donkey. And Mark looks over at Sam while they're reading, and Sam's touching his chest. He's touching his heart. And Sam looks at Mark and says, Daddy, I, th- I think I feel Jesus coming into my heart. And Mark says, That's so great, Sam. I'm so glad that you know that. that. That's awesome. And then Sam feels his chest again, and he looks up at Mark and he says, But, Daddy, where's the donkey? And Mark said, don't worry, the donkey's there too. We all have donkeys. And by that I mean we all still have this problem kicking around in us of our broken hearts, our fractured way of looking at the world, total depravity. You've got a donkey problem, I've got a donkey problem. And the temptation is just to go, oh, those donkeys, like, let, let's just let them do their thing, not worry about it, No because they divide our loyalty, because our sin splits us. One of my favorite lines from Dallas Willard is that sin splits the self. It tears us apart at our very selves. Everyone is blocked in some way or another from having a pure heart because of that donkey. But here's the really good news. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, in spite of our total depravity, the pure in heart are those who long for the purity that only Jesus brings. Like total depravity can't mess that up. It can't break off the desire that the pure in heart long for. And it's not purity like we manifest for ourselves. It's purity that Jesus gives as a gift. How do we know this? Well, go with me to the very next section. Where do we locate our hope? And then turn with me to John 15. We know that Jesus gives this as a gift because he says so. And guys, don't miss this. This is the gospel. This is good stuff. This puts a smile on my face. John 15, starting in verse 3. Jesus said, You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Did you hear it? Did you, did you catch this glimpse into the gospel? You have already been cleansed by the word I have spoken to you. That's it. That's the ball game. It's over. God has given us this gift of freedom in Jesus Christ. Jesus has won through his life and his death and resurrection. And the ball game is finished. And those who are pure in heart, those who inhabit the kingdom with hearts in the place that Jesus desires them to be, have been given that. How? By earning it, by scrubbing ourselves clean? No. By Jesus giving it to us as a gift. And so how do we respond to that? By being faithful, by abiding. By being committed to community, by being in fellowship with one another, by aching for the brokenness in our world that Jesus desires for us to move toward, not away from. But this is going to require some renovation of the heart, to borrow, borrow another phrase from Dallas Willard. Martin Luther, one of the key figures from the Reformed tradition, which I mentioned earlier, had a very interesting and very practical statement about the pure in heart. Luther said this about a pure heart. A pure heart is watching and pondering what God says and replacing its own ideas with the word of God. The pure in heart, a pure heart watches and ponders what God says and replaces its own ideas with the word of God. So how does that happen? How can you and I sort of make this exchange, move away from our broken ideas, move in the really good stuff that's in God's word into our hearts? I just wanna offer a really simple, really practical thing that I do. I do not check email until after I've read the scriptures. I get up in the morning, I put on my bathrobe, I make a cup of coffee, and the first word that I wanna read is the word of God. That was a conviction actually handed off to me by a seminary professor. I want the first words I read each day to be the word. I've never been able to get that out of my head or my heart And so whatever task is really pressing in on me, whatever's going on that day, it doesn't matter. I want to start with reading the word that brings me life before I get into anything else. And that gives me a foundation out of which I can truly thrive. So what about you? What about me? How could we better approach getting the word of God in front of us from the get-go? We watch and we ponder what God says through his word. And if you've Consider this within the context of just all the beatitudes you know, that this is the theme that it just keeps coming back to over and over again. Who lives in God's kingdom? Not the usual suspects. Not the people that we would look at and say, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're not. The people who live in God's kingdom are the ones that the whole Bible says, these are the folks to pay attention to. Not the mighty, but the weak. Not the rich, but the poor in spirit. Not those who are rejoicing all the time, but those who take mourning seriously. The meek, those who draw their strength from humility, those are the folks that are going to be in the kingdom, who inhabit the kingdom now. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who practice mercy, and those, as we've discovered tonight, who have such a deep yearning for the purity of heart that only Jesus brings. The Beatitudes are not a list of to-dos or fix-its. They are opportunities to see how life in the kingdom plays out right now. So, I want to finish with two suggestions and then the scripture. So, don't you love it when someone comes up to you at work and says, Now don't take this personally, but like that's the worst thing ever, right? <laughs> like, how can you not take that personally? Of course, you're going to take it personally, but here's the truth about God's kingdom. Here's where I titled the sermon this way Take this personally. Take this call to undivided loyalty, take this call to tucking away the word in our hearts, take it personally. Ask someone who you're in fellowship with to help you do this. Reach out to your group. Reach out to other people in your life. This is not a pie-in-the-sky abstraction. This is a real thing because, because God's kingdom is real. It is here, and we are being called into it. And we can begin by doing this, by worshiping together. We can begin by stepping into some of the things that Megan mentioned. I'll be on the men's Malibu retreat. I think it's an amazing way to be a part of God's kingdom. Another way that you can do that tonight to kind of ponder the kingdom and then really take it into the heart is by filling out one of these cards. You got it in your bulletin when you came in, and tonight it says, I want to see. I want to see God's kingdom breaking forth in this corner of my life or in this relationship. If you want to fill this out, you can put it in, uh, you can hang it up on the back wall after the service. It's a great way to engage with that, and What we're hoping to do is possibly take some of these cards to one of our global partners and share it with them as an offering to them of how our community is seeing God's kingdom break forth. I want to invite uh, the band to come join me back up here. And as they do, I want to ask uh, for the scripture to come up on the screen. And this is how we'll finish our time together tonight. We are going to look at this scripture And I'll read it for us. I want to invite you to read it with me afterwards. And then we will pray and we will just consider how this scripture speaks to each of us. So you can put down your notes, you can put down your pencils and just hear this word as we finish our time together. And consider holding out your heart to God as you hold this time. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Let's consider these words. Now I want to invite you to share these words with me. Let's read these together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Please join me in prayer. only you give renewed hearts. Only you give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Only you allow us to put away the temptation of idols and dividing our loyalties. Only you, through the Holy Spirit, empower us to have undivided loyalty. And so we thank you for the word. We thank you for how we've shared this time together. And would you, in your mercy, take these words and sink them deeply into our lives. That which you desire, that which you do not desire, may it be quickly forgotten. And Father, would you now take a moment and set apart these elements, set apart this simple bread and this juice as we come to the table. As you welcomed your disciples, we thank you for welcoming us. Lord, if there's any part of each of our hearts that needs to be checked, that needs to be held out to you, that we need to confess, would you hear us as we hold that out to you before we come to your table? We recognize that this time is special and sacred and set apart by you. So glorify yourself in this meal, we pray in the name of Christ.